Well, good morning. Glad you guys are joining us. For those of you who are joining us online, we're glad that you're joining us today. Hey, uh, as uh, your resident um, Duck fan pastor, I want to say to all you Beaver fans, welcome to the dance. We're glad after decades you decided to join us. Um, I I almost took a screenshot and showed you the, the final score of the Ducks game. Uh, that they had in the first round, it, it, was, it was so horrible, they just put uncontested, it wasn't even close. Um, someone else said that maybe VCU was just too scared and so they faked COVID so they didn't have to play the Ducks. I'm gonna go with that. That's what I believe, the Ducks. Woo! Here we go, final four. Yeah! Yeah! believers in the house. Hey, uh, glad you guys are here. Hey, we are continuing through the book of Matthew, so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 16. If you don't, all the relevant things are going to be right here on the screen here. We're going to be working on Matthew 16. Matthew 16. Also, um, as the video said, we'd love for you to join us for Easter, and we need you to register RSVP, mymcc.cc slash Easter to do that. Okay, here we go. You ready? Uh, Jesus is speaking. Well, he's going to tell us that. Here we go. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. Okay, now here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus isn't just interested in the local gossip of what's going on, right? Jesus isn't just like, hey, what's the scuttlebutt going on about me? Hey, do you think I'm going to make it into Jerusalem's most eligible bachelors this year? Like, that's not what's going on in this moment, okay? He, he's beginning to till the soil for the disciples for the question he's going to ask them. What's, what's going on? What's, what are, you've seen things. People have seen things. What do people say about me and, and look, look at what he says, uh, verse 15. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now let's pause here for a second because this is a massively loaded statement that Peter makes. This may be one of the most profound statements any human has made up until this point in human history. Nothing like this that we know of had been recorded. This is a weighty, complex, historically rich statement. Look at what he says. Okay, Simon Peter says, you are the Christ. Now, now Christ is a title, not a last name. There there are some of us who think that Jesus Christ, Christ was Jesus' last name. It's actually a title. It's the Greek version of the same word that is Messiah, right? And and when we think of Christ or Messiah, I bet that when you see this written out, you are the Christ, this is what what happens in your mind. Go with me on, see if this is you. You are the Savior, Right? And, and we, we translate this in our minds. We see this through the lens of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him might have eternal life. Right? That we see, Christ, that we see Simon Peter saying, you are the Savior. But the word Christ and Messiah doesn't actually mean that. It's a culturally loaded word that literally means, Messiah literally means the anointed one. The anointed one. 
And again, anointed is not really a word that we use very often, right? Uh, it would be weird for you to talk about yourself being anointed. Um, maybe, 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 maybe you've heard someone refer to it in some context and, you know, like sports, you know, or maybe satirically, maybe if someone was like getting in what seemed like an easy path to a promotion, you know, that, oh, they appear to be the anointed successor, you know, or, or something, something like that. But it's not really something we, we use in our language. And for them, it was a really complex, weighty word, the anointed. Because as one commentator said, the, the phrase the anointed was short for a statement that, was always, that always had a, a following noun. It was always preceded by a noun. This, the anointed one, was a shortening of a statement. And that statement was this, the anointed king. Anytime in scripture, when you, when you look through, anytime in scripture, in Jewish culture, when they talk about the anointed one, it is always in relationship to kingship. So what, what Peter's saying here is, is not you are the savior. He is, we believe that, right? But what he's saying to Jesus is you are the king. You are the anointed king. You see, what we're gonna look at today is that there are times in our life when we have agreement but not alignment, and agreement without alignment becomes a trap. So, so Jesus here, he, he says, you are the king, you are the anointed king. Think King David, right? King David was anointed as the king of Israel years and years and years before he ascended to the throne. In fact, if you don't know the story, he was anointed as a young man, and he was anointed with oil as a prophet that he was the rightful king of Israel, and then he fled for a lot of years, until he eventually rose to the throne. This is what the Jews had hoped for, was another David, another anointed one who would rise to become the rightful king of Israel, but even more than that, the king of all creation. So this is what Peter's saying. You are the anointed king. You are the rightful king. You are the one we, and, and this goes totally with what Jesus has been saying, right? Can you hear it in, in Peter's mind? Jesus has been saying this kind of stuff the whole of his ministry. If you've been with us as we've been working through the book of Matthew, one of the phrases that comes up the most is the kingdom of heaven. Now a kingdom requires a king. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is in your midst. And what Peter's saying is the kingdom's here because you are the king, and you're here. And it's just moments until you're going to ascend to the rightful place on your throne as king of all creation. But it's more than that. You are the king, you are the anointed one. And he says this phrase, the son of the living God. Now this is a direct assault against every other religious or philosophical idea of their day and really of our day. The son of the living God. 
Now, you see what he's saying is that he is God himself because God bears a son and his name, he, he is therefore God. He's not like a demigod. He's not um, a different God. This is, this is, this is in, in Christian theology, this is an idea that if you think about it too long, your brain's just gonna burst. And the thing we call the Trinity, right? It's the idea that Jesus is fully God but God exists in three persons. It's the best human language we can come up with, is that there is a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. They are all one God, distinct and unique from one another. Three persons, but one, right? And it's one of those things, if you try and think about it too long and too much, your brain just eventually can go, right? It's kind of like, have you ever tried thinking about nothing? Think about nothing, try and think about nothing. See, here's the problem. Whatever you're thinking about is something. Nothing is something. As you try and think about nothing, you're thinking about something because you're thinking about nothing, which is something. And eventually your brain's just gonna go, right? But what Peter is saying is that you are, you are God himself. And then he says this, son of the living God. Now these phrases are direct assaults against what will later become um, emperor worship in Roman society. Generations later it became really big because you see they believed that emperors were, were gods because they were sons of gods and if you traced back each emperor was a god and they bore a son and so that son was a god. But the problem is is that every single one of those gods or former emperors were dead. But Jesus is the son of the Living God, singular, the living God. This is a direct affront to the claim of kingship that the emperor has. You see see what Peter's saying? Peter's looking at Jesus and saying, you're you're the real king. You're the real king of all creation. He has agreement, but what we're gonna see is that Peter doesn't have alignment in his heart with what Jesus is doing. He, He uses the right words, he, he says the right things. He quotes the right prophecies. And maybe even if he was in our day, we'd say he'd, he'd quote, quote the right Bible verses or the right Bible authors or, or the right modern books. But what you're gonna see is that he has agreement in word but not alignment in heart. And so it becomes a trap. Agreement without alignment becomes a trap. Look, look, look at what it, it goes on. It says this. This is what Jesus says to him. Blessed are you Simon Barjona? Now, just a little. Anytime you see Bar um, in the Hebrew language, Bar means son, son. So this is just saying Simon, son of Jonah. Okay, Barjona. Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Right? He's saying this is. This is a beautifully true statement. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. If you look at, um, you know, in the book of Revelation, you look in the epistles and you look in the book of Acts, we see an image of this king who's rightfully taken his seat at the throne of God. That it says in the book of Acts that he's seated at the right hand of God, that he has taken his place as the king of all creation. This is true and right and profound and beautiful and beyond your fathoming and imagining as well what Jesus is saying. Peter, your best efforts, you couldn't have come up with something so true and beautiful as this. I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I'll build my church. Now, there's a word play there because Peter sounds very much like the Greek word for rock. I will build my church and the gates of Haiti will not overpower it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so now, now, now go with me. Think, remember what Peter just said. He said, you are the rightful king. And Jesus went, Peter, that is amazing. You, you could have never fathomed that on your own. In fact, on this testimony that I am the rightful king, I'm gonna build my, I'm gonna build everything that I'm gonna do. Now, we look at this verse, right? We look through our culture and our lens and our worldview and our language, which can sometimes be an obstacle and a hindrance to understanding their context. Uh, it says this, right? On this rock, I will build my church. Now, this is a great translation. This is true. This is true, it's true, it's true. But let, but let me tell you something. This isn't what Peter heard. In fact, this word is a very common Greek word that until years later had almost no connection to the church. We translate it as church because every single time that it's used in the New Testament, it makes sense in context, it's right to be speaking of the church, but it's a very generic Greek term that just means assembly or gathering or people, okay? So remember, Peter is saying, Jesus, you are the king, the king of all creation. You're going to establish your kingdom. That's what you've been saying. Just like David, you've been anointed that you are the one who's going to rise up and, and, and establish this eternal kingdom of Israel that will rule you, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And then Jesus says to him, you're right. And on this statement, I'm going to gather my people. Or maybe, maybe what Peter would have heard would be something like this. I'm gonna gather my citizens. I'm gonna gather the people of my nation. Do you, do you hear that? You see, you see where, where Peter's mind is? This is all kingdom language. This is all nation language. This is all king and empire kind of language, right? And so Jesus says, I will build my, my people, my citizens on this statement, on this true statement. And then look at, look at this. I mean, it just keeps going. And the gates of Hades will not overpower. Now, let me ask you this. What's the purpose of gate? A city gate is there to defend a city against a coming kingdom that's trying to conquer. You see where Peter kind of got over his skis? Like as Peter's listening to what Jesus is saying, all this fits. He's in agreement. Yes, yes, you're going to have a people. You're going to have a nation. You're going to conquer. You're going to be the conquering king. And even death, which is the gates of Hades, even death, the city of death will not be able to stop against what you are bringing, that you will reign for all eternity. This is kingdom language. This is nation building language. This is conquering king kind of language. It's easy for us to throw shade on someone like Peter. Be like, come on, Peter. Like if you know the rest of the story, you know that in the end it doesn't go well for Peter. Like Peter, how did, how did you miss it? Did you miss it? But you see, the problem for Peter was he had an agreement. He agreed to all the right words, all the right statements. He believed all the right things, but his heart, and he's even Jesus is going to say, his mind was not aligned with the kingdom of God. He goes on, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. I mean, you got to sympathize with Peter a little bit, right? He, he turns to Jesus, you know, everybody else, what do they say about it? Well, you're the king, and Jesus is like, you're right, and I'm gonna get all my citizens together, and we're gonna go storm the gates of that city, and I'm gonna give you keys to that kingdom. And Peter's going, yeah! Yeah, buddy, let's ride! Right? 
There's a spot later where there's one time where the disciples are like, hey, hey, that city, you want us to call down fire on that city? You want us to destroy the gates of that city? Wreck it with this coming kingdom that's gonna conquer everything? See, the lens through which David, through which Peter and the disciples saw the world was the lens through which uh, the story of King David. And King David was anointed, and then he ran, and he scrambled, and he hid in caves, and, and he had no place to stay. He had no home. He was homeless, and, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he wandered around. Sound maybe, maybe like this king that we're talking about? But... In the midst of his wandering, there was a group of men. There were, there were mighty men, Scripture calls them. There was a group of men who went with him who were like his ride-or-die kind of bros, right? They were with him to the very end. And Peter sees himself as one of those guys. And when the day comes when King David ascends to the throne and takes his rightful place as the king of Israel, as the good king of Israel, those mighty men become mighty, powerful influencers in the kingdom of Israel. And Peter sees himself just as one of those men that there's going to come a day. Man, you guys just wait. You wait. You've all laughed at us. We've wandered around. We've been hungry. We've been in storms. But there's going to come a day. And this king, he's going to whip it. He's going to come and he's going to destroy everybody. And he He's going to destroy even the gates of Hades, and he's going to take all of us, his mighty men, and we're going to be exalted into the, this powerful place of dominion over all of creation. David, uh, Peter, had agreement in word, but his heart wasn't in alignment with what Jesus was doing. You see, you see, the whole time Peter was looking for a conquering king and Jesus was offering him a crucified Messiah. And he missed it. It, it goes on, look at, look at verse 21. This is where it goes bad for him. I mean, wouldn't you have a little bit of swagger, a little, a little bit of confidence? You go back to the other 11 disciples? <laughs> I don't know what nonsense you guys are spouting, but look at me, Right? Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can, can we just all agree that, that was a bad life decision right there? Right? If your testimony is like, this is God, and then you're like, hey, God, uh, we need to chat. I need to do a little rebuking. God forbid it, this shall never happen to you. Now, now here's the thing, the word rebuke there in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, which you probably don't care, but in the Septuagint, that word, when it's used in the Old Testament, is most often used of the wrath of God. This word right here, rebuke, is a, is a word of correction, blame, or punishment. So, so, so get this image. This is what Peter does. He, he grabs Jesus and he goes, Jesus, we need to talk. I, I think you've kind of lost your way, Jesus. Hey, this, this whole thing's been going really well the last couple of years. You've been killing it. This like feeding people and healing people. You're killing this. But this whole dying thing, I think you kind of lost your way, Jesus. You're going to ruin this for all of us, Jesus. We, we got to have a little, little chat he says this, God forbid it. It's, it's an idiom in Greek. It, it kind of means like if you've ever lived in the South um, or, or met anybody from the South, it, it's kinda, it kind of means this. It's kind of like this is a, oh, bless your soul, right? It's kind of it's the statement of um, you're too stupid to be ignorant, 
right? It's that, it's that kind of sentiment, like, like hear the condescending nature of Peter taking Jesus aside to correct him and then just going, oh, come on, come on, Jesus, come on. I mean, you, you did really great with that whole Sermon on the Mount thing, like killed it, good job. But, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm the one who the Father reveals things through. Remember that? Remember you just said that? So I got some revealing I got I to gotta do to you. And look at what Jesus says to him. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me. For you are not setting your mind on God's purpose, but men. This, this word here, stumbling block, we translate it as stumbling block. Um, it, it can also be translated as like snare or trap. Uh, one of the most common illustrations of it when this, when this phrase is used here is uh, like the little, if I was a hunter, you'd, I'd know what this was called, but like the little trap where you like lay a rope in a circle and you put a little slip knot on it and they step in the hole and there's a little snare and then it pulls tight and it rips them up into the sky. At least that's what it does in the, in the cartoons, right? They whip up into the air, right? That thing, that's what this is here. It's a snare, it's a trap, it's a, it's a, it's a thing to catch your foot on, right? And Jesus says that you've become a trap You've become a snare, you've become a stumbling block. Why? Because you're not setting your mind on God's purposes, but on men's. You say all the right things, you quote the right Bible verses, you, you, you say the right prayers, you have agreement in word, but you don't have alignment in heart or mind. You, you, you can stand up and recite scripture and, and you can say that we should be praying about this and you can tell other people to pray about it and maybe you can even uh, tell someone how to follow Jesus better and you can recite all the right things and you can believe all the right theological things that he is the king of all creation. One of the most profound statements. You can agree on the right things and not have alignment in your heart and it becomes a trap. Peter's eyes had lost focus on the things of the kingdom, the kingdom of the king who's crucified. The kingdom of the crucified king, not the violent, conquering king, but a crucified king. His heart had missed it. And, and then Jesus does this really beautiful thing. He corrects him. He corrects him. Scripture tells us that, that God rebukes those he loves, that he corrects those he loves, that he does just what Peter did. You remember that moment? I don't think it's a coincidence that Peter's the one who comes and says, uh, Jesus, I need to, we need to do a little rebuking here. But Scripture says that it's actually a good father who rebukes his sons and daughters when their hearts have gone astray, when they become more focused on the things of men than the things of God. So here's my question to you. Just straight at you. Here's my question. When was the last time Jesus rebuked you? When was the last time that, that, that your heart had gotten out of alignment with the things of God and that Jesus corrected you? Because if it's been years, maybe it's never happened, I wonder if you're actually following Jesus. Because you see, our hearts are prone to wander. Our minds are, are prone to get distracted by the things of this world and it is a good, loving, and kind Father and a good and loving, kind Jesus that rebukes and corrects. 
It is not out of anger or bitterness or hate that Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, you've missed it. You've become a stumbling block to me and to others. You've lost track. Your eyes are focused on the things of this world and not on what God wants to do. It is a loving king. It's a loving father. It's a loving God who does. So when was the last time? When was the last time you followed Jesus closely enough that he corrected you? There's a... There's an old quote, I don't know who said it to begin with, but it, it's, it says this, it says um, that in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and since then, we've been returning the favor. I wonder, I wonder how many of us have been following a God we created rather than the Jesus of Scripture. Because the Jesus of Scripture will love you enough to rebuke you. He will love you enough to correct you, whether through the study of his word, through prayer, whether as you sit and stand and sing songs or through brothers and sisters. The God of scripture loves you enough when you walk near to him. You see, here's the other thing, the last thing I'll say. Um, you know why Peter got rebuked? Because he was standing next to Jesus when his heart began to wander. If we stand next to Jesus, when our heart begins to wander, a good and kind and loving Father will draw near to us and correct us and say, you've missed it. Your eyes have wandered to the things of this world and things of men. The question for you today, when was the last time Jesus rebuked you? If it's been a long time, can we be honest with ourselves and just ask this question? How diligent have you actually been at pursuing the Jesus of Scripture, the God who is alive today? If we haven't, may he be kind and gracious enough to us for us to hear again his good and gracious voice of correction and care and love today.